12 verses. We're going to read it. Then we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 4. So if you want to find that, you will notice Isaiah 53 is a very, is a very well-known passage out of the Old Testament describing our Savior, Jesus Christ, and His passion, which we are going to be beginning our examination of this morning. Isaiah 53, I'll be reading out of the New King James Version. God's Word says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He had no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, if you'll turn with me to 1 Peter in the New Testament, another companion passage to our study today in the Gospel of Luke. 1 Peter chapter 4. And again, we will read the entirety of the text before us of this chapter. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living 
and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Excuse me. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you... Let's start off this evening. It's not evening, is it? I'm ready, though. Haggai is exciting. Path back to God. Uh, Luke, this morning, Luke chapter 22. We have seen some great transitions here in our Gospel of Luke. Uh, in chapter 22, we have seen a transition from Passover to our Lord's table, to communion, as we call it. Uh, we see that transition of Christ fulfilling all of the types of the Old Testament. Now, that's a very important word, typology. Um, we may not always be familiar with it in Theological circles, we know what that means. A type is an actual thing or person or event that points to a future person or event. Uh, most of those types in Scripture we use in the Old Testament point to Christ, and Passover is one of those. That the Passover event, as well as the Passover celebration of Israel in the Old Testament, really points us forward to Christ. And so Christ, in, the, in having this last Passover with the disciples, uh, makes that declaration, essentially, it's, it's uh, completed. Whatever it's celebrated, we have something better now. And that improvement is the work of Jesus Christ. Passover was a celebration of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. But more importantly, more specifically, I should say, God's deliverance of Israel from the agent of death that passed through Egypt that one night. And so Jesus Christ comes not as a historical single deliverance for one group of people, for one generation from death, but in fact, the deliverer for all men from death, for all who would trust in Him. And so we find the fulfillment of the type of the picture Back there in the Old Testament, completed in Christ, and now we have the transition to something much better, much greater. And these transitions of, are difficult for us, aren't they? I mean, we can sit here and say, oh, it should have been easy for the Jews to figure this out. It should have been easy for Israel to accommodate this and to just simply switch from the way they have been worshiping for hundreds and hundreds of years 
to following Christ's pattern of worship. Um, but it's even hard for us to make a small changes in worship here, right? Without some issues involved. Because we become uh, static often in our worship, and that's unfortunate. Now, that doesn't mean that we are somehow just going to go with the flow of the world. We saw evidence in God's Word that that wasn't what we're called to do, but rather we are called to follow the Scriptures in our worship. And so we have the transition from Passover to the Lord's Supper. Then we have the transition that we saw last week from looking out for ourselves and our own interests and trying to bring ourselves into these places of authority and greatness that the world tells us to do, to make these declarations of accomplishment that uh, the greatest thing that can be written in our obituary was we pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps, which I've never actually seen done. But we use that terminology that that's a great obit when we can go through and tell about what they did and how high they achieved. But Jesus Christ says, no, I have a totally different view of the world for you. And that is that our greatness is really measured by our servantness, our humble service to others who cannot repay, who cannot accommodate us, who cannot uh, reciprocate to us, but rather we serve. And that is how we become great in the kingdom of heaven. And while the world seeks after position and stature and notoriety, the Christian community is called to something radically different. And this would be a huge change for Israel and for the audience of Jesus that Jesus is talking to here. Even among His disciples, they were all fighting, remember, over who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Can I have a seat at your right and one at your left? Peter's declarations, everyone else will fall away, but I won't. I'm willing to die for you. I'll suffer anything. I will never deny you. And Jesus Christ says, um, before the night's over, <laughs> you're going to be humbled. Because you are going to deny me, not just once, but three times. You see, we're all about making these big declarations. We're all about self-promotion. And God's Word says that our interest should be on others. That we should elevate the interest of others even above our own. That's called sacrifice. It's a word you don't hear a lot of in our culture today. Of putting the interests of others ahead of my own interests. That is, it's going to cost me something to care for them. That my resources will be, will be drained whether they are the resources of time, energy, abilities, material things, wealth, um, that it will be a taxing on me to care for their needs. And I'm not going to hold that against them, but I do it freely and joyfully. Huge transition societally. And it's one that we struggle with and we have to battle every day, I think, um, because it is just the natural thing of man to seek his own interests instead of the interests of others. We now come to a third transition. In fact, Jesus Christ here in Luke actually describes it as such that there's going to be a change now. And we all like to resist change uh, unless it's changed to our way. 
And the disciples are going to misunderstand some things Christ is going to say. They think that they know what's coming, but indeed something very different than what they think is about to happen. Let's read this portion of Luke chapter 22 as we come up to speed here now. Verse 35 is where we're going to start. Just a few verses. But we have a couple of chapters worth of information that we want to attach to these few verses. Luke 22, 35 says, And he said to them, When I sent you without money bag, knapsack, or, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said, Nothing. I'm pretty sure they said it just like that, only in Greek. Then he said to them, But now, there's that word of change, but now. He who has a money bag, let him take it. Likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for the passage before us. We pray your Spirit's illumination, that we might understand it, grasp it, and bring it into our lives. Uh, Lord, we pray you might find us receptive, uh, humbled and open to your word. You might penetrate uh, every wall of resistance that we have to your truth. Lord, we pray you might guard this time from the opinions and philosophies of men, of this man, from the world's ideas, and even from our own interpretation of what we hear. And Lord, that you might have the preeminence in this time in our minds, in our hearts. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, <clears throat> Jesus Christ has a big transition here. He had told them when he sent out the 70, two by two. We have 35 teams out there uh, spreading the news that the Messiah has arrived. And when he sent them out, he said to them, you don't need this, you don't need that. You just live by the hand of God's provision. Um, you're not going to take money. You're not going to take a backpack full of groceries and survival equipment. Okay? You're uh, not even going to take anything for self-defense, um, a sword or anything like that. Um, you're just going to go out there. You're going to live. And when, when people uh, offer you food, you eat it. When they offer you lodging, you stay there. Um, when they want you gone, you leave. You're going to live a life of total reliance upon me. And I'm telling you, during this period of time, and this point in Christ's ministry where they were the, the heralds, if you will, that Jesus, the Messiah, was in the land. That those heralds went out and had that kind of protection and provision. But Jesus Christ recognizes that there is something coming immediately upon them that is going to change this atmosphere. And it's going to radically and quickly change it. Now let me just share with you where we've gone from that uh, commission of these 70 witnesses, um, these 35 teams, two by two, out there 
um, sharing that the Messiah is here and he's going to be visiting villages and, and getting the word out uh, when they were casting out demons and healing the sick and, and the disciples are doing all that. From that point to this point, let's just review some of what we've seen. We have seen Christ engage his enemies at will and being able to silence them, the religious leaders of the day. We have seen him feed thousands upon thousands with a few fish and a little few loaves of bread. We have seen him walk at will, exercising authority over demons and illnesses, even death itself. In at least, what, two or three resurrections we've seen. He has been making his way toward Jerusalem now for several chapters, and um, he's been encountering some of the Gentile authorities as well, and they're very interested in what he's doing and, and even responsive to what he's doing, recognizing his authority. We have him coming in to the Mount of Olives just a few days earlier and being heralded by the crowds. Hosanna to the highest. Recognizing Jesus riding on a donkey, entering Jerusalem, throwing palm branches down before Him and there are coats out there for Him to walk on and heralding Him. He's in the temple. He's overthrown the tables. If you think this is a gentle man, you haven't read a lot of this, overthrowing the temples, kicking people out of the temple area. And yes, um, there's a time and place for that. And silencing all his critics day after day in the temple. They have come to the point, these disciples, with, by following Jesus to have higher and higher expectations of what the next few days might be. Things seem to be building. Jesus' popularity and His authority and His power seem to be inevitably bringing this tide of, of change and transition into this new kingdom. And Jesus Christ... Uh, even though he's tried to warn them on several occasions, sees it in their hearts. And so he tells them, listen, it's time for you to understand that there's a change coming. And it's not the change you're looking for. And that change is that the one that you think of as so powerful, so, so authoritative, and so popular ready to institute his kingdom at any moment, is going to suffer and die. He's not going to die some glorious death in battle. I don't know why people think that's a glorious death, but he's not going to die in that way. He's going to die in the most humiliating way known in that society. And he describes it as being numbered with the transgressors, right out of Isaiah chapter 53. And just as Jesus Christ fulfilled every type of the Old Testament, just as Jesus Christ fulfilled the law of the Old Testament, we've seen both of those described extensively for us. 
All these pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament are completed or are about to be completed in the next few hours. All the law was completed in Jesus Christ. And we now calls us to a different kind of living that's above the law. Not above the law and we can do whatever we want, but it's above the law and that it is more righteous than the law. And therefore you don't have to worry about keeping the law because you're living higher than the law. We think of people that live above the law as being lawbreakers. That's not what we're communicating here. We're saying that our righteousness exceeds the law and therefore Christ fulfills the law. He, he completed that. And now there's something He gives us new that enables us to live a life uh, so radically different that the laws themselves begin to, thou shalt not kill becomes kind of, I don't even think about that. Why? Because the law of Christ says you will not hate. If I don't have to hate, I won't murder. If I have contentment in me, I won't steal. And the law suddenly becomes kind of pointless because I'm not going to walk in Christ and say, well, I haven't murdered, but I've been hating everyone around me. No, because I recognize I'm held to a higher standard now. Well, now we have the transition of Christ. Not only is the fulfillment of all types, the fulfillment of the law, but the fulfillment of all prophecy. He's going to fulfill every prophetic utterance stated about him, including all of Isaiah 53 that we read. And he pulls out the one thing towards the end of that chapter and he communicates that to the disciples. He says, listen, there are some things that were written and they have to be accomplished they have to be fulfilled, is that word, accomplished. They have to be completed in me. Because that's what, who they are written about. These prophets in the Old Testament were writing about this Messiah that would come, and that's me. And if you had any understanding of what was written, you would understand what's going to happen. <laughs> we're not getting ready to overtake the Romans and set up a new Israel on this land. Rather, I am getting ready to suffer and to die and to suffer a humiliating death. And he pulls out one phrase to represent really the whole chapter. And that one phrase he pulls out is, and he was numbered with the transgressors. As Christ is the fulfillment of all prophecy from his coming, his virgin birth, which Luke takes extensive, extensive time to give us that information, um, from being the seed of David... Uh, from being the seed of a woman, uh, the virgin birth, uh, from all the way through. And, and the, the fulfillment of prophecy has just been recurrent throughout the Gospels. We come now and Christ says, listen, it's not just some of the prophets that have to be fulfilled in me. It's all of them. Including what Isaiah had to say about the Messiah. He wasn't the only one but it's a representative sample that Christ gives them. I'm going to be numbered with transgressors. I'm going to die a death on a tree. And it's going to be a horrible, humiliating one. And by that, I will take upon me the sins of the world. We read Isaiah 53 earlier this morning. And I hope you picked up the, the purpose behind this all. And that's really what we want to talk about is the purpose 
because this is what Christ draws our attention to, the final statement in verse 37. Um, he said, he, Let me read it for you. It says, For the things concerning me have an end. The things concerning me have an end. Now this uh, could refer to a chronological end, but uh, and we're going to make some comparisons there, and I'm not going to totally rule that out at all. But I really want to focus in on this Greek word is, is telos. Um, and it really talks about a goal, a purpose. The Christ fulfillment of the prophecy had a purpose. And Isaiah spoke to that primary purpose, which was taking away the sins of men. He was numbered with the transgressors, even though he was dying for the transgressors to take away their sin. That though he opened not, he did not open it, or he opened out his mouth, that he didn't have sin in him, and any no guile was there. There's no uh, there was, he didn't pretend to be good. He was good, inherently pure, innocent, and yet he's going to be numbered among the transgressors. He's going to die this horrible death, but it has a purpose. It's not a pointless, sad thing that happened. There's an end. There was a goal. And Isaiah 53 rehearses that. Let's look back at it very quickly. I just want to pull out a few words. <clears throat> While it describes the horribleness of it throughout this chapter, um, we come to verse 5. And it's, and, uh, I'm sorry, we'll back at verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yeah, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. His chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. That's the end. That was the purpose. Is to take away our sin. We have the fulfillment of prophecy, and that prophecy goes all the way back to Genesis. That when sin was introduced into this world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, with the punishment for that sin, the curse being given, in the midst of that curse, the prophecy began. The seed of a woman, very strange phraseology. Women don't have seed, only men do. Speaking of a virgin birth. So right away, a virgin, a child of a virgin, <laughs> seed of a woman, is going to crush Satan's head. But in the process of that, Satan will bruise his heel. And that word bruise used here again in 53 refers to what Christ is about to suffer. You see, Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of every, every type. And He's the fulfillment of every prophecy of the Messiah. And all of this is for a purpose. Not just so God can say, see, I could do it. That purpose was for our salvation, for us to have peace for our iniquities to be taken away, for our transgressions to be removed, for our sorrows and our griefs to be wiped away. 
verse that he's quoting out of, verse 12, and of course there were no verses back then. You know that? He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Incredible. The purpose. The end of it all. The goal. The the work of Christ and of all these prophets had an end in sight. And that goal was a loftier one than what the disciples had in their mind. They had in their mind, we're going to have an earthly kingdom. This is going to be the king. We're going to be the, the ruling class here. We're going to throw these Romans off. We're going to reestablish Israel in their glory days, even greater maybe than the days of Solomon. And they had that in mind, and Christ had something, and the prophets had something, the law had something, and the types had something much bigger in mind. A kingdom not of this world. A kingdom that wasn't exclusive to one nation, but rather inclusive of all men, that all might believe. We find in John 14, 15, and 16, particularly um, 16, we find Christ's prayer for sinners. That prayer happened in that upper room at this time when Christ is making this same declaration you will be numbered with the transgressors. Here's what's coming. You better get ready for the transition to what's coming. There's going to be some radical things happen that you need to be braced for. We're going to talk about that work when we get to 1 Peter. But you need to understand what's going to happen to me in the midst of this transition is I'm going to complete all prophecy, including my suffering. Now, What is the transition for the disciples? Christ has selected a way to try to help them understand what would be required of them. There's been a a lot said about verses 35, 36, and 38. In fact, most of my commentaries say almost nothing about verse 37, which is the key verse in this passage. Christ communicating the fact that He is going to suffer and die. And that it is going to be, the that's been the goal all along. That their goal and His goal are two very different things. So now, He is wanting to, once He has communicated this goal, he, he's, he's trying to make them have this transition and, and introduce that goal he calls them to a different kind of perspective. Disciples, you've been coasting along right now, sort of. All we've asked of you is to do. Do what I ask you to do. God's provided all the way along. You haven't had to worry about food. Even when you were worried about taxes, what would you do? You go out and fish, and there's the tax money in the mouth of that fish. That's kind of funny. So you're worried about all these things. I've told you not to concern yourself. You've kind of had a free ride. If you really look at the last three years of the disciples' life, it's kind of been a free ride. They didn't really have to uh, answer anything. Christ took care of that. They really didn't have to deal with the enemies. Christ took care of that. Um, he fed them when, when they were hungry. Um, he, he stuck up for them when they were accused of stuff. Um, they pretty much had it easy. And Jesus Christ saying, it's going to change radically in hours. So now, 
How do I communicate that? Well, these men are thinking how? Of earthly things alone. <laughs> They're just thinking earth things. He has been striving and striving and striving to get them to think on a spiritual plane. They haven't been able to get there. In fact, they've been so dense that even when he says point blank, I will go to Jerusalem and die, be buried and raised again the third day, they're like, huh? That's like the words don't make any sense to him. So he tells them, okay, let's do this, you earth creatures. I want you to brace for the opposite of the way life has been. You've gotten accustomed to it being like this. But brace yourself. It's going to radically change. It's going to be 180 degrees different. You're accustomed to it being like this, where I've been the person of notoriety. You've been just uh, sweeping in on my uh, coattails, so to speak. And everything has been cared for, and you've seen everything kind of building and building. And now the idea that it's all going to fall apart in your mind, you need to be braced for. So I want you now to go out and get a purse, get a knapsack, and get a sword. Now, does it literally mean that they need to have these things? Um, that's been the big argument. Did Christ literally mean that from now on, Christians, and this is a, a statement for the church, that we are supposed to make sure that we have uh, a, a wallet, knapsack of food and survival gear, and a sword for self-defense? Obviously not. And that's why we're going to use Peter's words to understand what Christ is trying to tell us. What does this transition mean for us in the church age? That Jesus Christ has fulfilled all prophecy. That now our focus is on a spiritual kingdom and not a kingdom on earth. And I wish more of the American church would figure that out, especially all those that are pretty sure that if they elect a Republican, they'll solve all of our world's problems. It won't. It never has, never will. Obama can call himself hope, but there's only one person who is hope, and that's Jesus Christ. So how are we to function here? I want you, let, let's read first of all what Christ says, and then we're going to go to 1 Peter 4. Christ said this, But now, he who has a money bag, let him take it. That's if you got one. Let him take it. Likewise, a knapsack. Purpose of a knapsack is to take some goods with you to care for yourself. And if you have no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Alright, you've had it kind of where if we had a lot of enemies around me wanting us to kill us, what happened? We just disappeared. They just couldn't find us. They went like blind to us. So they just walked through the midst of them and left. Okay, that's the kind of thing they've grown accustomed to. We didn't need a sword. Uh, and by the way, uh, it's kind of funny. I like what Patrick, not Patrick Henry, uh, I'll get the name, uh, had to say about his passage, uh, he said, uh, two swords is enough for people who didn't need any. Uh, and that's still true today. Okay. So what was this all about? Why give him these instructions? Let's go to 1 Peter 4. Peter was one of the guys there. He didn't get it then. 
He hadn't been filled with the Holy Spirit. He was still thinking earthly in his mind. But that wasn't his condition for very long. In a few weeks, he's going to receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. He's going to um, have his mind open to God's Word. And, and these things are going to come rushing in. All, of, all, the, all the communication of Christ is going to just flood their mind and their, and their heart and their soul. And it's just going to... Uh, not just a, a, a terrific recall, but suddenly like, oh, that's what he meant. You ever have those kind of days? That's what that means. You know, you're three days later after hearing a joke, and you go, oh, I get it. That is funny. But you have no one to laugh with anymore because it's over. Well, it's almost like that. Come Pentecost, when they receive the Holy Spirit, they get it. And one of those things that Peter gets is this passage of, was Jesus Christ really telling us that we should store up wealth and food and have weaponry? I mean, is that what we need to get through this world? I want you to, we're going to pick out several words in 1 Peter 4. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh. Remember, Christ said, What is coming? What prophecy do I have yet to fulfill that needs to be fulfilled for its goal, the salvation of your souls? I must suffer. I must be numbered with the transgressors. Peter here picks this up exactly. Christ had to suffer. He gets it now. <laughs> Isn't that great? You know, it's a big difference between ignorance and stupidity. Okay? You can't fix stupid. Ignorance, you can fix. These guys weren't stupid, they were just ignorant. And you might be here today and you might say, I don't get a lot of this. It's not because you're stupid. I hope. It might be just that we're ignorant of it. And we don't have the help of the Holy Spirit to draw us into it. They didn't want to hear it, so they didn't. But now, now, Peter says, Christ suffered for us in the flesh. Since He's done that. Look at that next word. In my version it says, arm yourselves. What does that imply? Get a weapon. Are you ready? Look what you're arming yourselves with. The same mind. You see, Peter understood. This wasn't about physical things. This was about this kingdom realm that Jesus lived in. That Jesus was speaking of all along the way. This kingdom... Um, he calling us to arm ourselves. Well, how do we arm ourselves in, in, to live here? Um, we're supposed to be harmless as doves, yet wise as serpents, the Bible tells us. How do I do that? Well, you have to arm your mind with something. You have to have a, a, a sharp mind, not just by gaining information and knowledge, but by gaining that spiritual insight into what is going on. You need to have sharp Minds, you have to have swords. You need to be armed, yes. But the weapons of the church are not guns and tanks and, and nukes. <laughs> and they are certainly not roadside devices. That is not our kind of martyrdom. We are to arm ourselves with the same mind as Christ. Let this be your sword. That we are armed 
with a mind. Recognizing that the suffering in the flesh had a purpose for Christ. And that purpose was to get rid of our sin. That that physical suffering, that physical pain, that physical thing that had to be endured had a spiritual purpose. That just as the Lord's table superseded Passover in every respect, so now, this instruction of Christ is going to supersede everything in the past. We're going to have a mind that says suffering doesn't equal um, disgrace, but rather glory. That it has a purpose. And that purpose is in the kingdom of God. And all through 1 Peter 4, Peter goes extensively to communicate to us that this whole idea that when we suffer um, as a Christian, he makes sure to distinguish. If you're out there suffering because you're doing naughty things, you deserve it. Don't sit there and say, I'm suffering as a Christian when you're just being naughty. When you're naughty, you should get spanked. Period. Do you hear that? And if your parents aren't doing it today, the police will do it for you in a few years. But when you are righteous and you are simply living out the Christian life and you suffer for that, it has a purpose. That if we suffer according to the will of God and we commit our souls to Him in doing good, um, knowing He's our faithful Creator, um, we recognize that this is something um, that sets us up for the kingdom. See, we're investing in something that endures forever and ever and ever. And the place where it starts is to arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. Christ is very terse when the disciples come to us. We got two swords right here. And he's like, oh, that's enough. We know from the garden that the swords were a problem, weren't they? They were not a solution. They were a problem at the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ didn't want them to use physical swords. That's not what he was really talking about. There's a powerful imagery here that he wants to communicate to us what it takes to brace ourselves for the harsh reality of the transitions from enjoying Christ's presence to living in this age of the horsemen. I know we call them the horsemen of the apocalypse, but if you read it, it's very clearly the horsemen of the church age. Those five horses that run around of war, of, of false teachers, of famine, of, of pestilence, and of martyrdom. How are we going to function? Well, brace yourself up. Here's what it takes. Arm your mind. Arm yourself with the mind of Christ to recognize suffering for what it is. Temporal, superficial, but with a goal. To glorify God. It's going to cause greater judgment on those that cause that suffering. But for we who suffer it, it enables us to glorify God in it. We go on. And uh, so we have the very first thing, arm yourself with the same mind. 
Verse 2, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. We've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, and we're just going to put that away. But it's not just getting rid of this stuff. It's replacing it with something else. In verse 7 it says, The end of all these things at its hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Our next instruction, not only put on the arm yourself with the mind of Christ, but that we get serious. It says become serious and watchful in your prayers. When we think about um, a survival kit, okay, and enough of you guys have military background, and enough of you guys are also hunters, and... Um, know what it takes to have when you're serious about getting a survival knapsack. And you've got a very careful list. And what you're trying to do is to prepare at some level for any contingencies that come along. And so my survival kit is going to include some way to um, maybe some food. Certainly it tied me over until I can figure out how to hunt fish or pick whatever I can eat some way of starting a fire, some way of caring for possible injuries, you get, you get serious. You get some serious things that you don't really want to think about, right? When you're making your survival kit, your backpack, you're thinking of the worst. What is the worst that's going to happen to me on this trip? And brethren, this is exactly the kind of thinking we need to prepare for the kingdom of God. What's the worst? Well, your worst is your sin. And it will be judged. And he's listed off a few of them here. And he said, you know, think seriously about this. And this is perhaps one of the most frustrating things of our society today is that we are not allowed to think these kinds of serious thoughts. Nobody wants to hear them. Nobody wants to actually think about death. But death is real. Are you ready? It will happen. It will happen to you. I was reading today in Charles Spurgeon's sermons and he quotes someone as saying, all men believe that all men will die except for themselves. All men are sure that all men are die except for me. Because if we really understood that I w might die, let me change that, that I will die, we would think serious thoughts and we'd start preparing. You see, when I get my knapsacks for survival ready, I start thinking really serious thoughts. And if I'm going winter camping, I'm thinking some serious, serious thoughts. What is it going to take to survive? What is it going to take to overcome? What possible negatives are down the road that I have to be braced for and prepared for? And here Peter says, listen, you better get, start getting serious and watchful in your prayers. And just as you have the mind of Christ about suffering when the end of all things is coming, and that means your life, you better get serious and watchful and think, what do I need to be prepared? And it brings us to our knees and we say, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. That I might be prepared for what is sure to come. Now, when I'm doing my survival backpack, I'm just supposing the worst. Well, I have bad news for you. The worst is real for the end. 
of your life. You will die. It is the worst. And it will happen. Maybe sooner than later. Are you ready? And Peter begins to pick this up. Am I ready? The end of all things is at hand. Peter said that a few hundred years ago. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. The mind of Christ is your armament. Serious praying is your knapsack. And I want to share with you what your purse is. Verse 8, above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. It's the money of Christianity is love. It is our treasure. When Jesus Christ says, if you've got a purse, take it. (laughs) Peter comes into here and he says, you know, Christ suffered for us in the flesh. We need to be armed. We need to be serious and watchful. And we need to be rich in this one area. We need to have fervent love for one another. That God may be glorified. And the rest of the chapter just talks about the fact of the glorification of God in our life. That we we can glorify God as we have these three mandates Christ suffered in the flesh for a purpose. That purpose was our deliverance. Now, there was a great transition back then. And he's telling them, prepare yourself. And they didn't need swords to do that. They needed to have the right mindset. And Peter didn't have it. And that's why he failed. He denied Christ. The disciples didn't have it. And that's why in the garden they just scattered and ran. They weren't ready. They couldn't even stay awake while he prayed. Because their flesh overran their spirit. You see, most of Christ's instructions, even the parables, were were not about the earth, but about the spirit. Not about the flesh. And similarly now, he's calling them. And Peter gets it now. And that purse... Oh, that we would have that love. It is the treasure of the church and of this age. That we have a resource that the world doesn't have. And this is real money. A lot of discussion over there whether our paper currency is worth anything and it's becoming worth less and less. And people think gold and silver, that's real money. Not in the church. In the church, you know what real money is? Love. The love of God shed abroad in our hearts. It's our treasure. He calls us to be hospitable to one another without grumbling. We receive this gift. Minister to one another. Look at verse 10. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We're managers of the bank of God's love. <laughs> What are you doing with his resource? What are you doing with that treasure? Manifold simply means different kinds, many different kinds, many fold. All the different kinds of God's grace. And rightly, Christ himself summarizes as love God, love your neighbor. 
You see, love is the treasure of the church. To live in this age, though we are citizens of a different kingdom, we live here. What do we need? What do we need during this time? And particularly, Peter says, particularly as the end of all things is near. It's a lot nearer now than when Peter was writing. In fact, we're on the cusp of it. What do we need? We need to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. We need to prepare ourselves with serious prayer. And we need to invest ourselves with the treasure of love. And those are the means by which we not just exist here or survive here, but that's how the church should thrive. Christ Jesus accomplished His goal. He's given us this instruction. And Peter got it later on and he writes about it here and, and really presents it. And these guys didn't go out and buy swords and start a war. No. They went and got the mind of Christ and started a spiritual war for the souls of men. Not to kill, but to deliver. To save. And we are called to that today. Brethren, arm yourselves. Get serious in your preparations of prayer. And oh, that we would have the richness of God's love our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank You for Your love for us. We thank You for Your truth today. Lord, we thank You for the fulfillment of all prophecy and its purpose. And we know that as we consider the prophetic utterances of what is yet to come, it is just as sure as what has already happened. Lord, we confess before You Our minds are much like the apostles back then. We keep thinking about this earth instead of your kingdom. This life instead of eternal life. Lord, help us. Be serious. And watchful. That we might pray. We might understand the nature of the enemy. We might sharpen our minds to understand the purpose of suffering. And Lord, that we might recognize what all the world desperately wants after today. That money cannot buy. This is the love that you put inside of us through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we as a church and as individuals might be good stewards of these graces that you have granted to us. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.